We are nearing the end of our time in the book of Genesis. I'm going to be preaching the, the final wrap-up sermon on Genesis in two Sundays, which I'll, I'll summarize the book, I'll highlight those major themes and ideas that we've seen, and I'll explore the question, what is the big idea, the main point of Genesis? What's the meaning? And so it'd be really valuable for all of us to consider rereading through the entirety of the book between now and then, and it will uh, really take us into that final sermon with the full arc, the full history and scope and context of Genesis fresh in our minds. But for today, we're turning our attention to the last chapter of the book. It serves as both a, a conclusion to the book, but also a conclusion to the Joseph narrative and the story of Jacob and his sons. If you recall, uh, Genesis is really volume one in a five-volume series known as the Pentateuch. And when you read the opening, the beginning of the second volume that we know as Exodus, it gives just a quick recounting of the children of Jacob and basically says, now all those guys are dead and just their descendants live in Egypt. So we really do reach the end of the story of this first family that we've spent some time with over the last several months. Genesis chapter 50 brings us some resolution to the dramatic relational strife that has been playing out between Joseph and his brothers for the last 14 chapters. But this last chapter doesn't just convey to us how the story ends. I think many of you probably know, at least to some degree, what happens next in the story. One of the things that I think is powerful about Genesis chapter 50 is that it isn't just trying to tie up the loose ends of the narrative, but it's also, it's also really confronting the reader with some significant questions, some difficult realities that we do well to consider as the story draws to its conclusion. And so let's turn to our scripture text, Genesis chapter 50, uh, verses 12 through 26. And as we read, of course, we ask God not only to inform our minds, but to change our hearts as well. So Genesis chapter 50, starting in verse 12. This is God's word to us. So Jacob's sons did as he commanded them. They carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre, which Abraham had bought along with the field as a burial place from Ephraim the Hittite. After burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt together with his brothers and all the others who had gone with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph, saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. 
So then do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all his father's family. He lived 110 years and saw the third generation of Ephraim's children. Also the children of Machir, son of Manasseh, were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land, to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear on oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. God, your word is good and true and authoritative, and we place ourselves under your word today. We ask you to speak to our hearts today, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thirty-two years ago, the great philosopher and theologian Garth Brooks sang the following lyrics. He sang, just because he doesn't answer doesn't mean he don't care. Because some of God's greatest gifts are what? Unanswered prayers. That song was the second most popular song in 1991. And I think that it was so popular and and continues to resonate with people to this day for for an important reason. Because it hits on a topic, on an idea, even on a a feeling that all who believe in the existence of God or really a higher power of any kind have struggled with, have wrestled with. Sometimes that question, that feeling is expressed this way with a question like, why does evil exist if God is really there, if he is really good? Or sometimes it's more directly, more simply expressed, why doesn't God answer me? But however it presents, humans have this ongoing struggle to believe that God really is in control, that he really knows what he's doing, that he really is good, that we can rest in his control. But after our time in Genesis, I think we could expand the lyrics of Garth Brooks's song. Yes, some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. Most of us have experienced that in one way or another. But also, I think we could say some of God's greatest gifts are times of suffering, seasons of pain, experiences that from a human perspective are profoundly unfair. Some of God's greatest gifts are those circumstances that bring us to the end of ourselves. There are three phrases, three sentences in our text today that I think do exactly that, that stop us in our tracks, that might shake us a little bit, that might aid in in bringing us to the end of ourselves, that lead us to repentance, that leave us looking to God alone for our hope. In fact, I would argue that these three phrases that I'm going to share with you today, that when we meditate on them, when we consider them, when we seriously think about what lies behind them in Genesis 50, I think these three phrases can make a significant impact on our lives. And so the first phrase that I'm going to share is this. It's a question. Am I in the place of God? It showed up in our text in verse 
19. Knowing that their father has died and that perhaps Joseph will now feel a sense of freedom to pursue revenge, the brothers send a message that supposedly came from their father Jacob. There's a lot of debate out there as to whether the message was concocted by the brothers, whether it was fictitious, or if Jacob really left those instructions. And we don't know for sure. And the fact of the matter is, it doesn't matter all that much. After the message is delivered, his brothers come in and throw themselves down before Joseph, and they offer themselves as slaves. But Joseph responds in grace, in mercy to them. He says, don't be afraid. And then we find the beautiful phrase to which we give our attention this morning, that question from Joseph, am I in the place of God? What is Joseph saying here? What's he relating to his brothers? We might understand it this way. We might understand it as if Joseph is asking, am I the judge? Or we might understand it a different way. Am I in the place to assign blame to another? I can't help but think of Paul's words in Romans chapter 12. Paul says this in Romans 12, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And then these pertinent words for our text today. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If your enemy is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. And then Paul concludes this thought this way. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What is Joseph telling us? What is Paul teaching us? That the gospel of Jesus frees us from the need for revenge. It frees us from having to get our pound of flesh to somehow make up for the way that we were wrong. The, the gospel gives us the long view of life and faith, allowing us to trust that God sees and God knows and God will do as he sees fit. And we're free to let go, to entrust the outcome to God. Many have viewed this part of the Christian faith as a burden, as a cross to bear. I guess I have to forgive. I guess I have to move on. But in fact, it's the opposite. This is an invitation to freedom, to wash your hands of any need for repayment or revenge or justice and to simply just entrust it to the Lord and move forward knowing that he is with you and he will do as he sees fit. But I think there's another wrinkle to this that's important for us to consider today. We might phrase Joseph's question something like this. Who am I to interfere with what God desires to do in my life? Who am I to interfere with what God desires to do in my life? Paul wrestles with this idea in Romans chapter 9 when he asks the question, and this is a hard question, but 
The question is this, but, but who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? It's a profound question for us to ask ourselves today. Am I in the place of God? Are there areas of my life and my relationships in which I am putting myself in God's place, usurping God's authority, taking on roles that I should be leaving to God alone? It's a bit of a dangerous question to ask yourself. Because if you look into that mirror for very long, you will undoubtedly find areas of your life in which you are trying to be in the place of God. This is sort of the, if you think about it, sort of the antithesis of Genesis 3. Remember what took place in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve so desperately want to see what God sees and to know what God knows. They they want to be in the place of God. They feel that God is holding out on them, that he doesn't want their best, that they know better than him. And that longing, that desire for control has remained in our DNA, has been passed along to us. And so this is an important question for us to wrestle with. Am I in the place of God? And one of the implications that we see is this, that to withhold grace is to reject the sovereign rule of God. I want you to think about that this morning. To withhold grace is to reject the sovereign rule of God. To withhold grace is to say, yes, I am in the place of God. Yes, I am the righteous judge. Yes, I do have the moral high ground. Yes, my righteousness does exceed that of this other person. Or we might say it in a more crass way. To withhold grace to our neighbor is to give God the proverbial middle finger, to choose to set ourselves up in his place. Am I in the place of God? Are there areas of my life, are there situations in which I am ignoring what God has said and just simply following my own way? Am I in the place of God? Second phrase that I want us to consider this morning is found in verse 20. And it says this, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. Almost any time in scripture that we see those words, but God, it's worth paying attention to. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. Joseph's brothers, in fear, bow down before him, again, fulfilling the dreams that Joseph had when this whole mess started in the first place. And in verse 20, it says this, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. Why? To accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Another translation might say, you intended evil against me. This is such an important thought that I don't want us to miss this morning. That God has the power to take the wicked, harmful, evil actions of other people and turn them around to be used for our good. Think about the harm that the brothers intended to bring to Joseph. They first wanted him dead, but then they thought better of it and just wanted him out of their lives forever. 
So they sold him as a slave to a, a traveling band of men on their way to Egypt. They wanted to eliminate the problem that Joseph and his dreaming and the favoritism shown to him by their father was in their lives. And it is hard to imagine a greater wickedness than to desire the death of someone in your own family. And yet look at what God did. It should blow our minds a little bit. That God in his divine and sovereign plan saw this wickedness and he wrote it into the story. So that as Joseph says, many lives might be saved. And of course, Joseph had in mind the lives of the Israelites that were now living in Egypt with food rather than dying of starvation back home because of the famine. But, but there's another element of this that's worth paying attention to. If we go back a couple of chapters, we see that Joseph didn't only save the lives of the Israelites, but also the Egyptians. Remember, Pharaoh had given Joseph the task of, of storing up food for seven years so that they could withstand this coming famine. And that's exactly what he did. And so he saved not only the Israelites, not only the Hebrew people, but also the Gentiles. But what Joseph wouldn't have understood when he said those words to his brothers, that God intended it for good to accomplish the saving of many lives, what Joseph wouldn't have understood is that there was actually a whole different type of saving that was planned because of all of this. Through the lineage of Joseph's brother Judah, another Savior would come, would bring about the salvation of not only the Jews, but also the Gentiles. And, and just like Joseph, great harm would be done to this Savior at the hands of those he loved and trusted. And, and God would use that utter evil in the form of a sinless man nailed to a Roman cross in order to save many lives. And God still does this today. He takes what is intended by others for harm. He takes evil and wickedness and suffering and struggle, and he repurposes it, writes it into his story for good. Paul, of course, captures this in Romans 8, a verse I shared with you several weeks ago, when he says that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. In all things. In all circumstances, even in pain, even in loss, even in evil, God works for good. And, and it's quite possible that the most difficult part of the Christian life is actually believing this and actually trusting that God has the power to take what is evil, to take the harm done to us and to use it for our good, for his good, and for the good of others. But when we believe it, when we're able to trust in God's ability to take terrible circumstances that have seemingly no redeemable value and use them for good, there is incredible freedom to be found there. As I've mentioned in past weeks, our ability to believe, to buy what Joseph says here, to buy what Paul says in Romans 8 is contingent upon recognizing the larger story. If we don't recognize the larger story of what's happening here, we'll never believe what Joseph says, what Paul says. We have to, to see, to recognize the overarching narrative and, and plan in which we are living. If we merely see our lives, if we just look at this life as 
existing for today with no larger, no more significant purpose, no more lasting, eternal or transcendent meaning, then it's almost impossible to find any hope in the midst of suffering or evil. But if you see your life as part of God's plan to save and to redeem the world, if you see yourself as part of something much more significant than yourself, held in the palm of a good and loving Heavenly Father and part of His mission to save and redeem the world, we then have a framework through which we can process, through which we can make sense of the suffering and the evil that we experience. When we are in Christ, we are set free to look at harm done to us and say, you intended it for evil. But God intended it for good. Now don't get me wrong. I'm I'm not denying the long-lasting effects of the trauma that many people have experienced. Joseph's words here don't erase all of the damage that has been done as a result of the harmful decisions that his brothers made. Nor does it undo the damage that's been done in some of the evil that's been perpetrated against you. They don't erase that reality. But they do give us the proper posture. And maybe more importantly, they give hope for the sufferer. That God has the ability to take the very worst of situations, the vilest of actions, and turn them around and use them for good. These words are an alternative to the self-pity into which many people fall when they're hurt. They're an alternative to a life of anger and resentment. They're an invitation into freedom to trust God in the process of healing, knowing that he always takes broken things and uses them for tremendous good. There's one more phrase that I want us to wrestle with this morning as we consider this final chapter in Genesis, and it's, it's actually the final phrase of the entire book. Simple phrase. Those four words, a coffin in Egypt. Look at verse 26. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. The end. You can imagine over the last year or so, I've spent a fair amount of time in the words of Genesis. I'm I'm actually really looking forward to moving on to new, fresh things new challenges for my mind, but it's been good. It's been really good. And, and I've wrestled, you know, for months actually with the way that Genesis ends. There's no pomp and circumstance. There's no mention of how things worked out. No descriptions of Joseph's continued triumphs in Egypt. Just reading through the text, we might miss the fact, and maybe you haven't noticed, that, that Joseph was about 30 years old when he interpreted Pharaoh's dreams and, and was elevated to power in Egypt, and he dies at 110. Do the math. There's about 80 years that pass from the time of the famine until Joseph dies. And we have basically none of it recorded for us. What seems clear is that Joseph, and, and as you read into Exodus, you get this sense that Joseph likely continued in his role until the time of his death. And I think that's what, part of what makes verse 26 seem so abrupt. He died, he was embalmed, and he was put in a box. End of Genesis. 
And as I read through some other commentators on Genesis, I realized that many have struggled and wrestled and maybe just been struck with this same tension. The great Presbyterian preacher James Montgomery Boyce, some of you are familiar with his ministry, Boyce pointed out in his commentary on chapter 50 that the coffin in Egypt is intended to stand in in stark contrast with the way that Genesis begins. What did we find at the beginning of Genesis? God's perfect creation, everything good. And then he creates mankind and he declares, not only is it good, it is very good. And then how does the book end? The savior of the Hebrews, the mediator, the presumably dead brother who was exalted to the right hand of the king of Egypt is now dead in a box. And that's the last picture we have as we read Genesis. I don't think the story, in fact, I know the story doesn't end there accidentally. It's quite intentional that the last image, the last picture in our minds when we read Genesis is a coffin. And there's something helpful, something instructive, something valuable for us to sit with that image for a while. All of the ups and downs, all of the twists and turns of the story, and how does it end? The same way that your time on this earth ends. The same way that mine will end, with a casket. This is one of the reasons that I've told you many times from this pulpit of the importance of funerals, of mourning. That we need to be reminded of that coffin. That we need to sit out there and look up at a funeral service and see the coffin in front of us. Not to be morbid, not to be depressed, but to continually point us to the hope that lies beyond that coffin. And that hope is found in the words that Joseph said just a couple of verses earlier. That great promise for all who believe found in verse 24. Listen to these words. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die. But God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land that he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is the promise of God for all who believe in life and in death. That God will come to your aid and will take you up out of this land to the land that he has promised. Is there a greater promise for us to hear and to receive and believe today that that while each of those brothers to whom Joseph was preaching the gospel that day would end up in a box just like him, God would come and take them to the promised land. If you're trusting in Christ today, this is God's message for you. While you, like Joseph, will end up in a coffin one day, God will come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land that he has promised. Just like the rest of Genesis, it doesn't only have meaning for its original audience, but it has tremendous meaning for us that we can live our lives with that solemn reminder and the reality that one day you will die. But paired with that is the reminder and the reality of the promises of God, the gospel that Joseph 
preaches to his brothers that, as the Apostle Paul said, when we die in Christ, we are actually swallowed up by life. And we live with the great hope that while Genesis might end with Joseph in a coffin, the scriptures end right where they started, with all things being very good once again. Where death has been swallowed up in victory, where his people are in his presence for eternity. And we have every reason to place all of our hope, all of our trust in that promise because Jesus himself triumphed over death. In one sense, Genesis leaves us with Joseph in a coffin. But in fact, it leaves us with the promise that God will take us up out of this land into the land that he has promised. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, you are so good to us. We have seen your faithful love on display, proven over and over, both throughout Genesis, but also in our lives. Your goodness, your grace never ceases. You are you're faithful to all generations. Lord, as we think about your word to us today, we confess that we so often try to put ourselves in your place. We want control of our lives. We foolishly try to usurp your authority. Like our first parents, we don't trust you. Because of our sin nature, we feel like you're holding out on us at times. So God, we confess our sin. We confess that the depths, that the dark depths of our hearts. We thank you for the gospel that comes through so clearly in Genesis 50, that good news that you have the power to turn evil and harm into good, that you will one day take us to the land that you have promised. And so help us to live in that freedom from that place. We believe what you have said and give us faith to believe in our moments of doubt and unbelief. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.